When you hear the phrase, soft as steel, what do you think of? While the word steel might conjure up images such as massive high-rise buildings, where does the soft part come in? And what exactly does this mean in our work and in our lives? Welcome to the Soft as Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran, featuring engaging conversations with a wide range of industry leaders around soft skills, how we practice love, inclusion, social justice, and compassionate leadership that's everlasting in the workplace. And now, here's Dennis Duran. This is going to be a fun episode. I'm joined today by a good friend, John Burkaw. John is the Director of Academic Education and the Chief Administrative Officer for the Finishing Trades Institute of the Upper Midwest in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He began his career as a union member, commercial industrial painter. He stepped into the career path with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades that led him to his current position in 1997. John describes himself as an accomplished, results-oriented leader with wide-ranging skills and experiences, having spent 20-plus years developing and implementing organizational programs and strategic initiatives throughout the U.S. and Canadian construction industry. He further says that he's learned how best to establish and maintain an institutional culture that leads to exceptional student growth and outcomes. Now, that's a mouthful, but I know from my relationship of several years with John that this is true in the most practical and positive way possible. I particularly like these words. I'm still a painter at heart and enjoy rolling up my sleeves, getting my hands dirty, and joking around with our students. I'm committed to making sure our students are of sound mind and body, placing equal attention to both their craft skills, employability skills, and their behavioral health. John, welcome to the Softest Steel podcast. I'm happy to be here, Dennis. uh, You don't sound happy. You don't sound thrilled. Well, you know, after hearing that introduction, (laughs) that, that was quite a mouthful. It, well, it's yeah, but it's uh, I, I I added everything that I thought was uh, make believe out of that. I appreciate that. But again, in the way I've uh, the way I've known you, I think that what you are what you are doing and the Upper Midwest Institute is doing are is very very important work for our industry. Uh, a number of the things you're doing by just simply by virtue of their visibility to the greater world are models for the kinds of things we need to do to to make sure that we develop the whole person for our industry, not just a, a craft craftsperson or a tradesperson. And I think that's one of the things that I've enjoyed watching what you and your colleagues at the Institute have done. And that's some of what I want to talk to you about today. You're familiar with my work. You, con- you commented on seeing my shameless promotion of my book in the background here in my, in my office. I should get like a really big poster size of me off that front cover. What do you th- I mean, that would be a good feature, don't you think? Yeah, because your book looks kind of insignificant it's too far away it's uh mm-hmm. yeah well I'm, I'm a humble man you're not however i think you should <laughs> yeah a big poster would fit between the door and the window i think okay all right well so i think uh we'll work on that we'll work on that see listeners i told you this is going to be a fun fun podcast it's just it's not possible for john and i to carry on a conversation any other way <laughs> but i think importantly uh you know again i was careful to to introduce him in the way I did, because he, he, again, he and his institute are doing things which are hugely important to the construction industry. So let's start, let's start, John, with this notion that I've tossed out there, the idea of developing the whole person, which you kind of allude to when you talk about 
not just craft skills, but employability, behavioral health. When I talk about the idea of the whole person, does that philosophy or, or way of thinking make sense to you? And if so, how is that evident in how you have developed and delivered the programs that the Institute has been so proudly delivering for the last several years? It does, Dennis. If I go back to earlier in my career when we were just focused on the hard skills, the craft instruction, how to work safely, how to, to do the tasks that were put in front of you, we really lost sight of the rest of the individual that uh, we were required to do. You know, when we were coming up teaching, we would joke about we're often that students, pastor, mentor, parent, we filled a lot of roles in our student lives, but we always did it very informally and inconsistently, I, I, I believe. And here, here at the FTI, the Upper Midwest, we've made very deliberate steps to focus on not only their craft skills, but their uh, employability skills, and uh, most importantly, their behavioral health, their mental well-being. We know that the number one cause of death in construction is death by suicide. It's not talked about often enough, and the issues that our students face daily aren't spoken of often enough. And so with that, we have implemented and we will begin in January having a full-time licensed behavioral health clinician on campus every day to provide counseling, crisis intervention, education to our students, but maybe most importantly, the student advocacy component, reaching out to students, checking in on them. When a young person gets laid off for the first time, they really think that their employer hates them, it's the end of the world, how am I gonna make ends meet, what's gonna happen next? And sometimes just that quick intersection, a phone call, talking them off the ledge, guiding them through, getting unemployment benefits for the first time, and also having connection to community benefits if, if a student were to need help with rent, gas, lights, water, et cetera. But if we don't invest in the whole person, uh, we're only getting a, uh, a partial product of what we're supposed to be turning out here at the school. We are to provide a skilled and capable workforce for the finishing trades industry. And if their hard skills are, are sound and the rest is not, we're really not providing a good product. So say more when you, when you use the term employability skills. What, what, what are the skills that you're referring to? You know, here, here at the FTIUM, we have a, a high school career technical education program. So we're seeing a lot of younger adults than we do see in the apprenticeship. And when they come to us, I think it's easy to get mad at them. And because they don't know how to use a tape measure, they're not familiar with tools, they are unfamiliar with the concept of being somewhere 15 minutes early and some of the other things that, that we know from our generation, Dennis. Um, but we make a poor choice of being mad at them if nobody's ever taught them otherwise. So we have to take a step back and realize that these young adults are grossly ill-prepared for what comes next, that transition between high school and their post-secondary uh, efforts, whether it's college, the trades, the military, or just entering the workforce, but they're grossly ill-prepared, developmentally behind uh, the consequence of the pandemic, academically behind as a result of the pandemic. And if we don't invest in that whole person, they're not going to, they're simply not going to make it. Mm -hmm. As you uh, gave a few examples of employability skills, you mentioned both 
what I call hard skills and also soft skills. And, and as you know, when I talk about soft skills, I define them as being a person's uh, traits, attributes, their behaviors, uh, manifestation of their values. Uh, when you're dealing with, with young people, which, which is a, a, an absolute uh, strategic requirement for this industry, in, in all industries, but again, our focus here is on construction and specifically the finishing trades. When you think about the, the soft skills part, how are you emphasizing something as practical as, as understanding themselves, which we refer to as everything from simply their, their disc profile to what their level of emotional intelligence is? How much are we articulating some of that? And even though they're young, explaining it to them in a way that helps them to get to know their selves as people entering and trying to pursue a potentially a career in the trades? Well, I think one way we go about that effort, and we're certainly not doing nearly enough, but one way that we lead is with, with a culture of understanding and allowing folks to be who they are. I think that's, that's very, very important right, right out the gate is that they can come here, be who they are, how they are, and be accepted. Two, accountability. We, we do spend a lot of time, not just the school holding the student accountable, but them holding themselves accountable as an individual, but also their peers holding them accountable as, as classmates. As far as really getting into who they are, we're dealing with young people that are so focused on surviving the near term that they can't see the long term right now. Um, mm-hmm. So if we're working with young adults who are off track to finish high school, some with housing instability, food instability, they can't look far enough down the road to see what that future looks like, but they also are going to be challenged with looking inward to really see who they are as an individual. So we, we really tried to help that blossom throughout the time they spend with us, develop into the the person they believe they are, uh, that we know they can be. And uh, it's a journey. It's really a journey Mm -hmm. we take these young adults through in the time they spend with us. Mm -hmm. Are you currently doing any specific things that that help them to, if you will, use a tool or an assessment or uh, an evaluation to try to paint a picture in words as to, who they are in, in this environment they're now trying to live in, which is the environment of a new person entering a trade right out of high school. We, we have the students do a weekly reflection at the end of every week. And the questions that we pose are both, what did you do this week? What did you learn? You know, for example, I learned how to spot screws or embed tape, but also uh, some, some deeper questions about them as an individual. Um, we want to know about their confidence level. We want to know about where, the, where the, we want to get a sense of where their where their heads at. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about mental health, and the same way we, we we talk about diabetes or cancer. So we encourage the students to say, "Look, I'm having a I'm having a day, and this is why." But at the end of the week, have them reflect on how they maybe got through their anxiety, or maybe got through. Um, a bad day dealing with their depression or, or other circumstances that are put in front of them. But when we get them to journal and then to, to write these reflections weekly, um, they become incredibly powerful 
And last semester, we actually had a young band come out as as gay in his weekly reflection. And it took uh, the courage, the culture. Uh, it took a lot for him to be comfortable, especially in a construction program, but not just to come out to us as, as faculty, but to his classmates who, without judgment, uh, just showed him love and respect and really made it a great, great outcome. Well, that's a powerful story and a good one to hear because, again, we also, I know you're well-read, so you so we read about the, the, the different values of each of the generations in the workforce. And, and one of the good news items with regards to the newest generations in the workforce is, is really both what their self-view is, but also how they view other people they come in contact with in their day-to-day lives. And they don't they don't uh, label people the way, frankly, my generation, which is the baby boomer, and yours, which I, I imagine you're an Xer, right? I'm, you're not a boomer, are you? I'm a millennial. Are you bo- oh, you're a millennial? It must be the beard. I think the beard. Audience, I know you can't see the beard, but uh, it, it, it is quite a beard. Quite a beard. I'm a slacker. I'm a slacker. I'm the slacker generation. So, so you're an old millennial. I am. Very old. So when you when you look at these uh, Xers and Zers, uh, I guess I guess it's really Z that you're looking at. Is is it fair to say that that little story is an example of of a reality, and that reality is that as far as how they see themselves and others, uh, they they don't tend to just look at uh, the cover, if you will, and 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 label or judge people. Is that is that a fair characterization? I, I think absolutely. As long as the guardrails are up. And they're in an environment where they're allowed to do so. Mm-hmm. I think in some in some in some circumstances, they do keep their guard up and are protective of, of their of their self. But mm-hmm. in a good environment where the guardrails are up and they're safe and they and they can be, they really excel. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that we have struggled with is we can have gang members from different parts of the town that aren't friendly with one another different race, ethnic, gender. But I had a, I had a faculty member a number of years ago say, John, when we get them all together, they're like puppies in the, in the dog park. They all get along. Mm-hmm. They're all having a great time. They're all learning from one another. But when we return them back to their community, however, their community doesn't show them the same love and respect that we do here at the school. And that's, that's the biggest challenge that I, I think we face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. You've mentioned you mentioned a word that you know is is part of my vocabulary, and uh, and I know you had a chance to visit uh, the summit that I uh, that I uh, broadcast last February, where I talked about four topics in the form of four individual roundtable discussions. One of those topics, and the lead uh, topic, was about love. Talk to me about what how love operationalizes in your life and in your work, and how you view the people that you work with and work for. We. We tell the students that everything we do, we lead with love and respect. We love and respect ourselves, and we love and respect other people. And this is a group of young adults that this might not always be the case, um, that they've been showed uh, love from, from everybody around them, whether it's at home or at school or in the community. And, and that's really our guiding principles in, in a lot of what we do. We have foregone our typical attendance policy, for example, Dennis, where you know the traditional three strikes and you're out. 
Well, by doing that, you're just throwing people away. That's mm-hmm. certainly not showing them any kind of love and respect. So if somebody is missing, we need to find out why. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did, they deserve a phone call. They deserve that intervention to find out why they're not where they need to be. And sometimes they simply don't want to be there, and that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. But more often than not, there's something else in the way. And by leading with love and respect, it breaks down those barriers, and it makes it a much more comfortable conversation with the student if they're, if they're facing a significant challenge. We had, we had a young student who had suffered tremendous trauma as a young lady early in her days. And when she came to us, she was off track to finish high school in a credit recovery program and kind of just being tossed aside for, for far too long. And part of her recovery was going through uh, intensive therapy on Mondays. And it took her all day on Mondays, so she couldn't attend school. And because of that, she'd gotten grossly behind. It was going to age out of the of the high school system here in Minnesota. Well, part of it, I think, is just common sense. The others is, is maybe just human decency. But we made adjustments to give her Monday off. It wasn't a terribly difficult decision for, for me to make at the school. And as a result, she graduated high school, graduated with distinction, finished our 18-week program, and most importantly, she's healthy. She's healthy and well on her way. And, you know, it's those kinds of examples that set us apart maybe from a lot of other institutions where we took that time to understand the student's circumstance and applied some common sense, but most importantly, love and respect to, to her circumstances, then uh, we made it work. And, you know, here at our school, we have to stop throwing people away. Um, it's gone on for far too long. And uh, if we look at student retention and really try to understand why students leave, we may find out uh, there's more to the story. And so our commitment to their whole person, we also believe is going to help with student retention, increase graduation rates, and overall better outcomes for our students and also for their employers that they go to work for. Mm-hmm. How is your retention? Our retention is not as great as we would like it to be, but about 70%. Is that, how is that? Is it trend, has it been trending in a positive direction? Um, the pandemic didn't do anybody any favors. Yeah. However, I think we're post-COVID right now. As far as student enrollment goes, our student enrollment is up. Our diversity numbers are up coming out of the pandemic. So things are definitely trending in a much better direction. You talked earlier about mental health and death by suicide. Is, is that, in your, in your way of thinking, perhaps the biggest overarching issue that we're dealing with in terms of the workforce? I think it's just one of, of several. The younger the student we spend time with, I think the more open they are to uh, discussing their their own circumstance, which is a huge positive of where the the future is is trending. They talk about therapists like you and I may talk about restaurants that we enjoy. They may they're open about it. They're open about their circumstances. However, it's the older generation that is the rub some dirt in it mentality, the the suck it up. You know, these are 
in their minds, oftentimes moral failures and, you know, not diseases of the mind. So there's a, there's a lack of understanding between generations when it comes to mental well-being. So we got to overcome some of that. I, I think as we go forward, reduce stigma, reduce the way that uh, change our words, et cetera. On top of that, we have to do a better job of mentorship. Uh, mentorship in the trades, I believe, has uh, it's kind of fallen apart at the seams, to be to be frank. And we have to do a del- we have to make deliberate efforts to return mentorship to the high level that we would expect or folks from my generation got to enjoy. But I think we have to focus uh, on mentorship as well, because that mentor is, is that is that person that is helping you with your soft skills, right? Dennis, as you come to work, they remind you, hey, look, I need you to be here a half hour early. By the time you park, get into the shop, it's a quarter of, you got to get settled in, and I need you on the tools by by start time, not rolling mm-hmm. in at five of. Um, that, mm-hmm. that mentor that's saying, look, you can't go out and party every night of the week, pal. You got to go mm-hmm. home, have supper, do your laundry, and go to bed. Get a good night's rest so I can see you on time tomorrow once again. Uh, that guidance sometimes with even getting that first house, buying a car, leasing an apartment, opening up a, a bank account, how to pay your bills. You know, th- I learned a lot of that from my mentors growing up in the mm-hmm. trades. Is that mm-hmm. taking place right now? We know it's not always taking place in the household either. And so when we get angry at these young adults for, for doing dumb things, they're doing them because they don't know. Nobody took mm-hmm. the time to teach them. Mm-hmm. So in, in the course of trying to, to be uh, mindful of the whole person, obviously you rely heavily on your trainers to model the behaviors and, and the qualities that you think are important for the students to learn about, understand, and then determine if, if they can relate to them as part of how they are dealing with their, t- with their trainer, with their classmates, with the contractor that they're working for, all those kinds of things. Do you think that, is, is the connection being made uh, in a way that, that the students understand that, you know, it's one thing to be, be on the tools at seven o'clock and that's all about being trustworthy and reliable and a hard worker, which are all statements of a person's qualities, good things about them. But do you think that that, that connection is, is being voiced uh, and acted between the students, the trainer, and whoever the, whoever the representative of a contractor is who brings those apprentices into their operation and takes the responsibility for the, really the vast majority of, of, their, of their technical tra- or hard skills training is really laid at the hands of the contractor? The OJT model is still persistent in a lot of the trades. What are your thoughts about that? I think you raise a, a critical point in how do, how do we manage the students on the job learning experience as a whole and making sure that employers understand their role. There's, there's been one side of the coin that would say, well, it's the school's responsibility to get them ready for the workforce. Well, us as an institution, we have them for 160 hours a year when the employer could have them in upwards of 1,800 hours a year. Does the employer have somebody on their payroll that's responsible for the apprentice? 
and managing their on-the-job learning, making sure they're going and getting their related instruction at the school, uh, making sure that they're being moved about the job site to hone their skills uh, accordingly. That's not always that's not always taking place, unfortunately. And I think we could do more to to improve uh, that oversight. I guess I would mm-hmm. say the oversight of the apprentice on the job. And for a school like ours, we we bestow college credit for your on-the-job learning. So we're able to give college credit for going to work, coming to our school for the related technical instruction, but also for your five general education courses, which results in an associate's degree. Well, if we're going to give college-level credit for your time on the job, we have to make sure that it's monitored, you're being assessed, and that you're you know, going down the the path towards being that outstanding journey worker at the conclusion of your apprenticeship. So I think we have a lot of work to do in that space still, Dennis. Uh, We are hiring a new addition to our staff that will be responsible for employer education. Uh, We have upwards of 200 employers that we work with here at District Council 82, and we need to spend more time talking to the employers, not about the collective agreement or about grievances or somebody didn't get paid, but the value of the school, the value of registered apprenticeship, and, and how we go about uh, preparing this next generation of workforce. I think we saw during the pandemic and, and other downturns in the economy, when the labor market gets tight, everybody's wondering where everybody went. And there's no instant coffee in registered apprenticeship. It takes five years from day to hire to really be that great journey worker. So how do we encourage folks to forecast five, eight, ten years down the road their staffing needs so they can make that investment five, eight years in advance instead of, oh, the the pool's empty. I have nobody on the bench. And all you can give me is a first year, first day apprentice. Again, there's no other option. We, we, we make trades people from scratch here, and, and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, too, that you know, part of the reality is that uh, the majority, if not the vast majority, of individual contractor organizations are not large operations. They may peak out at, at 20 to 30 persons in, in, uh, in peak season and fall back to as few as a handful in the wintertime. So the idea of, 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 the, of what I, I hear you describing as a necessary investment in, in an organized way to make sure that, that whatever, whatever they bring from the apprenticeship class, uh, which is 160 hours of time in a, in, a, in a year, whatever they bring with them, that there is more being done with time by a, the contractor to augment all of that and to integrate the basics that they learn in apprenticeship to build their skill level and build their their people skills, their abilities to be to be part of the team, part of a crew, part of the company. And do you see that part being addressed, particularly by the larger contractors? But I mean, this it, it needs to be something that's being talked about, not just assumed. So are you, are you seeing and hearing conversations saying we need to do more of this or more of that? Yes, it's going to take time. Yes, we're going to have to pay them for the time. But these are the things we need to do to make sure that, that they're as, as good at being people, working side by side with others, as they are handling a, a piece of equipment or a tool. Your thoughts? I think that's the exciting news, Dennis. Our, our, our contractors and our management partners 
are really on board with the work we do here at the school. They truly are our partners in developing that next generation of, of craft workers, you know, fulfilling the workforce needs in the state of Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana. And they trust and believe in the vision and the direction that the school's going in. But really when the rubber meets the road, our students are getting the job done for them on the construction sites. And mm-hmm. with that being said, however, there's always so much more we can do mm-hmm. to, to make those improvements, to, to have that, that understanding, as, as you had mentioned, in uh, not just capital, but human capital. Human capital, mm-hmm. it has to be as equal an investment as any other capital you put into your, your firm or your company. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's always the case or what's always on the, the forefront of folks' minds. However, we do see with the tightening of, of the workforce right now, I think maybe folks coming to terms with the circumstances that are in front of them and what has to take place in order for us to replenish this empty pool that we're dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Really, two or three more questions as we as we wrap up. We're coming to the end of our time. Sadly, I'm enjoying this conversation, and and so so far we've both been pretty well behaved, which I think is remarkable given I understand both of our personalities pretty well. First question is, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot and and, and I'm really curious about is what what we as an industry are doing to give the youngest people possible a glimpse of what could be, of what the possibilities are that that you're very, very young. You know, you're you're in eighth grade or sixth grade. Uh, and so I want you to take these uh, these little sticks and I want you to make a little structure out of those sticks. And then I'm, then I'm going to explain to you what you just did so you can understand how cool it was, blah, blah, blah. How much of that is beginning or is happening to try to get this industry in front of the youngest, youngest folks out there? For us, we recruit in the middle school space. And our strategy in the middle school space is just exposure at this time. So a, a, a student in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, it's quick to know what a fireman is, a police officer, a business person. Mm-hmm. And then there's a mm-hmm. generalized term, construction worker. And they just do everything on the project. And little do they know there's the variety of trades. And it takes a variety of different folks to, to work in concert to build these wonderful buildings and to build these great skylines in, in our metropolitan cities and out in our, our rural communities. And they simply just don't understand that. Um, so we, we try to give them exposure. Then we leave them with wanting them to be curious. We just want you to be curious. I, I'm not going to, at fifth or sixth grade, try to convince you to become a painter. Mm-hmm. What I will try to convince you is to ask questions, be curious, explore um, beyond what you might hear at home or from a neighbor or from your, your teachers at school, because that's still a pretty limited view of what's available to you. Yeah. We use some really great technology um, in our recruiting efforts. So we have virtual reality simulators that we use that replicates what it's like to paint, what we're able to replicate the use of an aerial lift or a scissor lift or a virtual welder. And mm-hmm. that gives us enough time to attract them, talk about the differences in the trades that we represent. And we often hear really good things about uh, that exposure. 
Mm-hmm. We start to change the narrative when we get into eighth, ninth, tenth grade, because we know that oftentimes by tenth grade, the student has made a decision post high school or their parents certainly have made a decision on their behalf. So Mm -hmm. we believe we have to intersect before those decisions are being made to keep this young person from going down a paper route that many times leads to a poor outcome. Mm -hmm. If we look at the average Mm -hmm. age of apprenticeship being 28, 29 years old, what do these young adults do for that 10 years between high school graduation and getting into registered apprenticeship? Wow. And I believe it's often a pretty lousy paper out of dead-end job, a little bit of school, mm-hmm. uh, bouncing back and forth around. I'd like us to try to get involved sooner, shorten the length of that paper route, and uh, get them into the trades sooner than later. And mm-hmm. so the way we do it, I think we have to keep planting seeds. We have to talk to them about things that matter to them as well. You know, surprisingly, mm-hmm. dollars and benefits isn't the most important thing to these young people when they enter the workforce. Mm-hmm. They certainly don't want to talk to old guys like you and I at high school fairs and career fairs and other events. They want to talk to their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that we do it is we have an ambassadors program where we're able to take current students or recent alumni and send them out with our recruiter to the communities where they came from, maybe to the high school they attended, and and visit with the students on a peer-to-peer level about their particular experiences and why they joined the trades. But also they could share about the projects they worked on in that same community. And they could say, hey, look, here at Washington High School, when they put the new gymnasium in, we did the painting and and drywall finishing here. And Mm -hmm. it really has a direct connection versus you know, a couple old guys, old gals going out talking to the students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not that old. You are that old. Oh, you okay. Are. All right. It's so, it's starting uh, to show too. You think? A little bit. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost, yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry for that. It is, it is what it is. Don't, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm still breathing. Let me end with, with a, a question that deserves only one word as an answer. For the new generations that we're trying to track into our industry, what's the most important quality that we want we need to instill in them to help them be successful? Kindness. Wow. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. That's a that's an incredible answer. What we're looking for in for in, for the new people. Kindness. Let's, let's end on that thought, John. This conversation has been fast, strong. Anybody that's listening to this in the coming weeks and months will gain some great knowledge and be grateful to you for sharing this time with us. So thanks for coming to the Soft as Steel podcast. Thank you, Dennis. And for our listeners, if you would like to learn more about FTI of the Upper Midwest, please go to www.ftium.edu. Thanks, Dennis. Very good. Okay. Take care, John. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Soft as Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran. Dennis is the author of Soft as Steel and a leading speaker and trainer for organizations across many industries and verticals. 
To learn more about the work Dennis is doing to activate soft skills in the workplace, contact him at DennisDuranSpeaking.com. Be sure to check out his book, Soft as Steel, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And please remember to share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you feel would benefit from the conversation. We'll see you next time on the Softest Steel Podcast with Dennis Duran. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.